0: So I'm just gonna ask you a few questions um, and it's just gonna be very conversation back and forth. Um, okay. Yeah, and then I'll have you do a little introduction. Okay, I'll start. Okay, welcome everyone to the Posturing Pre-Med. I'm here today with Dr. Geller, who is a pre-med advisor at USC. Uh, do you wanna give a little background, Dr. Geller?
1: Hi, everybody. Um- if you don't know me, my name is Dr. Ken Geller, and I am the Director of the Pre-Health Advisement Office at USC, and we are just finishing our 11th year. Um, I have a little secret to tell you at the end, and, um, but uh, I was the uh, Director of the Pediatric Otolaryngology Division at Children's Hospital for about 15 years and was vice chair of surgery for two years before I decided to take this job at USC as your advisor. And there's lots of reasons for that. And I see in in Maya's questions here that um, she asks about PATH and we can get to that. So um, I'll be happy uh, to stop here and let Maya go ahead and ask uh, any questions she wants.
0: So, you were you were just talking a little bit about your path into becoming an advisor. Um, what, as a physician who is very well established, what drew you to um, that specific position as an advisor? Did you hear about it from word of mouth?
1: Well, it's a little more complicated. Everything I'm going to answer is complicated. So you tell me when how much time you want to give to each question.
0: You can go so, on as long as you want.
1: Okay. <laughs> So I'm a, uh, I'm a retired surgeon and surgery is uh, a medical field. Of course, there's many types of different surgeons and each, each field of surgery has its little tweaks that it gives you. Um, certain surgeries can give you carpal tunnel syndrome. Some give you pain in the neck and some give you headaches and it depends and surgery was is not made for the benefit of the surgeon, it's for the patient. And a lot of times you're bending over for hours and twisted and so in any case, um, a lesson I learned from a friend of mine uh, was that, you know, you you, can't, you won't be able to do surgery forever. And, and that's such the hard thing to think about because while you're in the midst of it in, in your career, you don't think about that. It, it's very hard to, to to just fathom the fact that you may not be able to do it. There, there's a time limit to what you're going to be doing. But he said, you have to prepare for it. So when I was around, it's, this is a part of the midlife crisis we all feel. I was maybe um, 48, 49, 50, somewhere in there. So I said, I better start preparing because at at 50, let's say, I'm I'm lucky if I can do surgery for 15 more years, right? Now, there are some people who can do surgery longer and others that less time. It's just like baseball players, for instance, you can, pitchers particularly, you know, you can throw, if the 10 years your arm is gone or you can pitch for 30 years. like uh, Nolan Ryan, for instance, but anyway, so I thought I'd start. So I decided that I was gonna I, um, get uh, the MMM, which is the master's in medical management degree that at the time USC wasn't offering it, but eventually they did. They, they became part of a national uh, group of people that put this together. So, so I took courses for a year and they were great. They were great. But at lunchtime, I would sit and I talked to all the people in the course with me, actually one of whom I went to medical school with. And she said that, um, and all not just her, but most of them said that, what do you want to do with this? And, and they said that they wanted to be insurance company experts and uh, they wanted to manage insurance. They wanted to be uh, managed care executives.
0: So these were all people that were former physicians? And then they are, they're still, they're still physicians.
1: Yeah. And they're taking the course along with me for this master's degree in medical management. Mm -hmm. So it's what it says. It's, it's about management. And as a director of a division at children's hospital, I had to do management. I had to learn about, you know, economics and um, debit sheets and credit sheets and, you know, business and um, you know, all the different costs and and, and manage the costs that it, took to, to run the division. Mm-hmm. And then as the vice chair of surgery, I wasn't given that responsibility. I had other responsibilities. So. But as the director of otolaryngology, I spent a lot of time managing the office and the employees and the doctors and all of this. So that's another, that's a discussion to go on all day long. <laughs> but So after a year, I decided that I, I do not want to be an insurance company. So I like taking care of patients and I really like teaching. Mm -hmm. So for a couple of years, for a number of years, I would get this postcard in the mail saying, um, Dr. Geller, uh, we have a course at USC, which is a master's in medical education. And I've been doing medical education for years without any master's degree. I was, you know, I was teaching medical students and uh, residents for years as part of my job Mm -hmm. as the chair of a division is to teach the residents.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, about the specialty
0: my grandpa was also a teacher too i don't know if i've told you that before but in ultrasound
1: oh see there you go that's it's good so that uh, all of these different areas you got to teach somebody because mm-hmm. after you're you start you got to pass it on mm-hmm. and that's another thing that's hard to learn uh is that eventually you do ha- you do have to pass it on mm-hmm. in any case so for a number of years, I said ah, I'm, they, they offered a this this masters in medical education. I said, ah, I'm too busy. I haven't got time for that. I'm never going to be able to do that. And then one day I got the postcard again, <laughs> and I said, you know, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to jump in there and do it. So I jumped in, and from 2003 to 2005, every um, a, a, a three-day weekend every month we had all day that's all day friday saturday sunday uh, our courses for our master's degree and then
0: uh the May, Tuesday, excuse me they would be on the weekends
1: um friday to sunday through sunday
0: okay
1: uh and then uh we we started off with a number of them every um that were every week for a while and then it became every month but the amount of work and reading—it's uh, a lot of stuff—and mm-hmm. so for two years, every every weekend, when I wasn't in class, I was reading and doing reports and projects. And so two years later, I got my master's in education, medical education, mm-hmm. and that was the last year that they offered it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was good that I did it when I finally Something
0: did it at the right Somebody time.
1: told me. So I, I wanted to formalize my my teaching part of my career. When you go into academic medicine, there's a, it's a tripartite career. There's the clinical part, you take care of the patients. There's the um, education part where you're teaching the residents. And then there's the research part where you're doing uh, clinical or uh, uh, bench research. And I, I, I don't like bench research, so I did clinical research. And um, that's part of it. That's part of the deal when you go into academic medicine. And we'll get back to that. So, um, once you get the master's degree, then then, then you gotta use it. <laughs> right. So I, I did a lot of, um, job. I, I took on lots of different committee jobs at the medical school and got us through the uh, evaluations. I was part of the committee that evaluated the educational program. <clears throat> and then, um, one day in the clinic, I had a student that was shadowing me, and uh, she said that uh, the baccalaureate MD program, which they had at the time, where you go for four years undergraduate, and then you are guaranteed admission to medical school if you met certain if you met criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you guys know of Dr. Erin Quinn, but she was with us actually in the. In the uh, health, uh, the pre-health office for a few years, but anyway, um, she managed that, and she was managing it while she was the dean of admissions at Keck, and the student told me that she was deciding to retire from that and do some other things, and I said, hey, maybe I could do that, and I did, and I I became, and then Dr. Quinn didn't retire from it, so she and I co-taught that program until it was um, discontinued by the university around. 2011 I think somewhere in there
0: Okay.
1: and it finished around 2013-14 because I had to bring the students through that it started we weren't going to stop their program but anyway um, and then uh, as time was going on I, I was getting older and my, my eyesight was starting to change I, I had perfect clear vision and, and as you get older <laughs> your lens doesn't Uh, is not as flexible in your eye and you become farsighted and for me I wore magnifying glasses I used a microscope and and telescopes and stuff It was good I could still get by and I just wore glasses when I'd operate but as time went on it got more and more and I said well you know if this continues I'm not going to be able to do any surgery so better start looking around for a teaching job somewhere and that's right about that time Uh, The university decided uh, around 2009. um, So that's four years after I did the master's program. I was finished. Uh, And I was doing the back MD thing. Mm -hmm. Um, They decided to uh, change how they managed the office. And they asked me to manage the office. I mean, I applied for the job. I had to apply. It was just not, I mean, they, they had to interview you and they had to choose from a bunch of people. And I was offered the job and I felt very, very, Happy. I I felt I could do surgery for three more years, but the reality of it is that if you and you learn this in your um, your your courses that you take your your leadership courses that when the phone rings you got to answer it and I I did that Um, and it actually worked Mm -hmm. and also um, you have to plan ahead and um, prepare for it prepare for what you're going to do in your life and. And thinking forward, I think um, it was a good thing. So then I took the job, and I had to give up um, my job as vice chair of surgery and my job as director of otolaryngology at Children's. And um, I mean, financially, I took a pay cut too, mm-hmm. um, but I thought it was worth it. At that, time, I was already sixty-three years old, and I—I I, was—I could—I felt I could I felt like still do three more years, but. It, I was afraid that the job wouldn't be there in three years, which is true. I mean, they would have found somebody else. Right. I said, well, I can't do this. Come, come ask me in three more years. They would have laughed at that. I said, well, what are you talking about? You can't do that. I mean,
0: well, you can't just do it on your own
1: time. <laughs> right. You got to you gotta be prepared. That's why I have to answer the phone. So um, and that's what happened. And uh, it took me another. So we, oh, the, I got the job in 2009. We opened the office in and. Um, it, but I just couldn't do it full-time. I was still working at Children's right. because right. I couldn't just tell my patients goodbye. I mean, I wasn't going to do that to them. So you did, took,
0: you, you started the pre-med office, like there wasn't one before 2009? That's right. Oh, wow. So kids were just trying to figure things out on their own without any like guide, you know, really Well, straight.
1: actually they, the, the academic advisors did it
0: Oh, but they weren't specific to the pre med.
1: Um, no, or, right? or pre, just not pre-med, but pre-dent and pre med, but pre dent, and it's the pre health office because it includes all those others. Right. And so this if, is not to that wasn't their job really. Uh, their job was to to act, to advise you academically to make sure you get a degree and that everything is working for you. And it's very it's a lot of work to to keep up with all of the pre health stuff because it changes constantly. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of different things you have to be up to to date on and. Uh, and and that are hard to you know medical schools change the how they do things constantly, as you'll find out when you're applying. Mm-hmm. So we opened the office and we started, um, but I was working at half time at Children's and half time at uh, at UPC, and, and so I'd go in in the mornings to the Children's. I, I still had surgeries that I was doing, although I the first that first year I backed off. I didn't. I only did. Uh, I once I taking care of the patients that were in the pipeline. I, I didn't get new patients and I only took care of emergencies when I was taking call, which I took an uh, emergency call until 2013. So it was a slow yes. off. Right. off. I, I had to make sure that my chronic patients, the ones that I took care of that I had going for years, um, I had to make sure that they were settled with the new doctor and the new doctor knew the the complexities of their cases. So I would go to surgery with them. We would double up on the surgery and we would go over things. And it was, it was a transition. It took a number of years.
0: And so far as, you know, as you've worked as an advisor, the, for the last uh, more than a decade now, um, what do you think has been the most gratifying part of of doing that,
1: well, it's a, it's an easy question to answer, and that is getting you guys to uh, get into professional school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and- for some of you, it's harder, and uh, for others, it comes easier, and that's depends on the gift that you're given in terms of your ability to sublimate all this information and, and put it into your brain. I worked really hard as an undergraduate in pre med. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was <laughs> Yeah, it all. It, it's I was doing stuff. I tell you guys not to do, and that's to plan ahead and don't pull all nighters. All nighters are for the birds.
0: Well, at least you you're trying to give the advice that you would have given yourself as a younger, you know,
1: call. That's true. I would have uh, done my studying differently. It was very different fifty years ago when I was more than fifty years when I was a pre med student. So what
0: what would you say were the biggest differences, and how how have you seen that you know change since um to into today?
1: well there's a number of different things first of all um, as a pre-med student um, y- there was no no shadowing uh, there was no uh, really volunteering they didn't you, you know I, I worked every summer in college uh, as a uh, camp counselor or a lifeguard
0: mm-hmm.
1: and a waiter I was a waiter on a table waiter at various places at these resorts and um so one of the biggest things that we had a pre-head actually we had a pre-med advisor it wasn't pre-health it was pre-med at, at queen's college where i went to college in new york okay and but they didn't have anything the first thing they told us when we got there is that they hated us <laughs> <sighs>
0: Oh, that's a way to boost morale. <laughs>
1: yeah, re- well, really, they said that we, we well for lots of reasons they hated us because they were biology professors and uh, you, you either majored in biology or you majored in chemistry. There was no other major that you were allowed, allowed to do. If you, well, were, I guess you could have done physics maybe, but um, but
0: you couldn't be was, like a non-science, non-stem. Major.
1: Non-science didn't work. That's the wow. first thing. Well, the second was, thing is we had me. <laughs> Uh, second thing is we had really no advisors to go to. We just did it. We flew by the seats of our pants and we did what the people ahead of us did. And and that made it hard for me because I took too many courses at the same time. Many of our courses were three-unit courses. Wow. And except for the four-unit lab courses. And so you took five courses every semester, but the work was really heavy. Mm-hmm and it was one of the reasons i didn't i had trouble with organic chemistry I, I i challenged myself with courses that if if you came to me with the schedule that i had from, made for myself i would be talking you out of it <laughs> you know for instance organic chemistry was was a really heavy course mm-hmm. and you have to keep up with it it's not that it's that hard as as Morris it's just You got to memorize a lot of equations and things. You know, it's difficult in that sense. But at the same time, I was taking an upper division biology course. And I taught myself, I only needed one semester of calculus, but I did so well my first semester that I took a total of three semesters in calculus. So I was taking a semester of calculus. And because I was getting a Bachelor of Arts degree in biology, I didn't have a Bachelor of Science So I had to take my English course, required English, and it was a poetry course. Plus I had my language requirement, which was French. So I'm doing all of this stuff and there was just just no way I could do all that. Mm -hmm. So there was nobody to tell us that we made the wrong decision. And besides, I also started college when I was 16 years old. So it was another thing. I was right out of high school, I just changed the location and I lived at home and it was a commuter college. Okay. But in any case, um, that was one of those things. Then also, uh, we didn't get told what our MCAT score was. We took the test. It was one and done. You did it one time. That was your score. They didn't tell you what it was. You, they could sent into um, the medical schools and uh, they had your GPA and stuff and they decided that if they wanted to interview you and review your letters of recommendation. So that you get letters of recommendation and would you, so at I least, had two letters. would you at uh, least find out
0: your MCAT scores after you sent it to them? No. Wow, so they, you still don't know it to this day.
1: Not, not I had a chance, but it was, um, it was one interview at one school that the students, that my class friends would say, he holds up the paper to the light so that you can read it backwards if you can. And it was just at the time of day that I really couldn't see through the paper to what the score was. Mm-hmm. So I never knew what my MCAT score was. I guess I did okay because they interviewed me in a bunch of places. So.
0: Well, yeah, and I was, I was a middle of the
1: road student. I was not a, I was like a three five GPA.
0: But you got somewhere, so that's all that matters.
1: That's all. I, I got into three, four places. That's all. Awesome. I applied to about twenty five schools, and I got into four of them.
0: How did you know you wanted to be, become a doctor?
1: Oh, that's it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a hard that's question. Yeah. Well, no, that's a difficult one, and I'm a clay, I, I, st- I have to tell you that uh, if you'd asked me that 20 years ago, I probably couldn't answer it. Uh, at first, it was just a natural um, magnetism I had, so that when any of my friends got hurt, when we were playing, you know, in the yard, you playing on concrete or gravel or stuff. You know, there's no grass <laughs> where I played. And um, when anyone would get hurt, I was always the first one there to, 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 you know, I didn't know what to do for them. I would just brush them off and take them home and, or put water on it or do something. You know, it was just something that I did. And- You always
0: had the instinct to care
1: or to help, so. That's true. Um, but as I got older, I said, "Now, what, 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 what was, what was that? I mean, why did that happen? How are you born that way, or it was temperament? Uh, and uh, and my, you know, um, my temperament was to to be helpful. Mm-hmm. But the question as to why uh, was different, and it took me another twenty-five or thirty years to realize that." I, I enjoyed, you know, so what do you think, what do we call our firemen, we, uh, firewomen, you know, firepersons, the heroes, our ambulance, our paramedics, they're heroes. And what it dawned on me was that I liked being the hero. Mm-hmm. I, I, I liked people thanking me for helping them. And, and I liked science too. I was constantly badgering my parents.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My parents, graduated high school that was as far as they went um, and on my mother's side of the family I was first generation American and first generation college student mm-hmm. so the
0: was it was it their goal for you to ultimately attend college or did they were they not as um, attuned to that did they have a particular interest or intention for you to go
1: to college no no they uh, so when I told my parents I wanted to be a violinist, my mother said, "Forget about it." <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. So,
1: so I, I had a choice of lawyer, doctor, dentist, or accountant. Those were the three, four choices I had to pick from. Other than that, I would have gotten lectured to over and over again. My dad worked in a factory, and he took me there one day, and it was in. He was. It was the stinkiest place. It was terrible. And I said, I'm going home to do my homework. I don't want to work here. So uh, my dad and my grandfather, his dad, they both worked in the, uh, it, was, it was at that time, uh, animal furs for coats and stuff was a big deal. And uh, so they were in that trade where they processed furs to make coats and things. Mm -hmm. of course eventually that died out so but that was good too that that happened I mean all these animals being herded for for coats for people yeah Yeah. but anyway um so I didn't have a choice Uh, uh as you if your parents are immigrants you all can understand they sacrificed a lot and um To come from europe my my grandparents came from poland uh they they were polish jewish families who immigrated to the united states in the early uh 20th century so anyway um there wasn't much choice there. but i was i was okay with that because i like i liked it and uh, science and dissecting things i did it, I, I was dissecting frogs anytime i went to camp i was always talking to the council was like, let's dissect the frog or something. And it was, you know, mm-hmm. I feel badly now that we killed a frog, but in the end <laughs> uh, I was interested in it. So um,
0: it's, it's the necessary. Yeah.
1: necessary. Yeah. what well, well, was part of it. So, but anyway, it was part of the development. And also it's part of to learn that you don't get a license to do that. So anyway, um,
0: you, you dissected the frog in college or in, in high school?
1: uh I dissected it in high school in college we did cat dissections so these were that we didn't kill these cats these cats were embalmed so wow. uh, so we did cat dissection and um and then in in, in medical school of course we did human cadavers
0: you, and the cada- so were cadavers only allowed in medical school or was it ever was it ever allowed that it could happen that um, it was possible to perform um, on a medical cadaver in undergrad as a pre med? Because I've heard things about that being possible, but I'm not sure.
1: Um, well, it, it, the answer is no, it wasn't possible uh, to do undergraduate dissections. Um, as far as medical students go, I didn't know if the physical therapists were able to do it at the time. I know. They had cadavers when I was a surgical resident. I used to use them myself too, but um, no uh, cadavers were left for medical school and dental school. The dentists also; those are the two oh, areas.
0: Right. Dentists too. Why were they needing to do it for their?
1: They were required to do not just a head and neck, but to do everything. It was part of their training. Now they may have, they may have changed that now, to they just do head and neck dissection. I actually don't. Know. It depends on the school but um, no, the answer to the question is, uh, it was just medical school.
0: Okay. Do you feel like um, in any significant way, medical school itself or the medical field has changed since you've been in it?
1: Well, yes. Uh, I, I, I may just say to round that, that convert that first question off is that, I, I think uh, I was accepted into four schools mainly based uh, I think on my interviews. Oh, wow. And, um, and that, 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 that's an, I mean, going on that, that path was interesting too. Um, I had some pretty toxic interviews at some places. Interesting. And and one of the the best interviews I had was at USC
0: and
1: that's ultimately where I wound up. Uh, I wasn't, it, it wasn't my first choice. Uh, I actually I didn't even think about applying there until one of my friends who was a year ahead of me at Queens College had gotten in. He was the first Queens College student to be accepted mm. at USC. And uh, he told me to apply there and I did. And I got in, I couldn't believe it. Um, but um, the, the, the acceptance was based on your GPA, was based on your MCAT, which you never saw. Uh, it was based on your interview and your letters of recommendation mm-hmm. and a lot of that is pretty much the same right now I mean medical schools now uh, some schools are very uh, they 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 really value the MCAT uh, they feel it, it, it levels the playing field others level the they they like the GPA I personally if I were the dean I think the MCAT was okay but uh, I would I would first thing I would do is take out the uh, cars section because I think it discriminates against uh, those students who uh, have English as their second language, or if they grew up in a in a home with their immigrant parents that spoke another language. A, a conversational oh, language, language is a lot different than literary language. Excuse me, you were asking me something.
0: Oh yeah, okay. is it t- um, part of the test? What does that exactly cover?
1: The section is critical analysis and reasoning skills. They give you a passage to read uh, that gives you all the information you know. It's, it's, it could be anthropology that you never took a course in. It could be music. It could be um, astronomy. It could be chemistry, whatever. Uh, but the answers are in the paragraph. It's an analyzing what they are looking for to give you questions to answer.
0: Yeah.
1: And like I, I, I tell the students who I... Tell them you got to read, 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 read. Uh, and, you know, read good literature, late 19th century or 20th century uh, English literature, good stuff, not, not junky stuff. And I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish, I used to be anyway. But, and I used it all of my career for my patients. It was very important to Children's Hospital. A large portion of our patients were Spanish speaking at the county where I was an intern. A large portion was Spanish speaking. But when I want to read Spanish literature in Spanish,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I have to have a dictionary in my hand plus the book because every other line there's at least one or two words I don't understand. And because it's not used in in, in conversational language, it's used in literary language, just like anything else. But anyway, so um, that was that the MCAT was different. It was. Um, it was one and done. You, you, you went in, there were no MCAT courses. There was no Princeton review. There was no Kaplan review. You, <clears throat> you studied, <clears throat> they say you're gonna take your test in such and such a month. And we all showed up at, it was at, at where I went to school. I mean, each university sat you down and there was no difference between each coast and West coast. I mean, it was at nine o'clock in the morning whatever your time was. And you sat down and you took the test. And that was it. So that was different. Um, I, I think it was a more holistic re- a review of the students, I think, honestly.
0: Oh, more so <laughs> than correct. And,
1: and I'm not talking about extracurriculars because there really weren't any, because I did research when I was in college, uh, fruit fly research. And I always say it's the fruit flies that got me into medical school because they were dying from a a, 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 a mite infection. They, so
0: the Drosophila
1: uh, fruit fly. Drosophila, right? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The the, the the pre-health advisor and the biology department was big on fruit fly research, and the flies were dying from a mite infection. And I was working in the lab that summer, and they said, "Can you save these flies for us?" Which meant I had to separate them, pick the mites off, put them in food vials, and and so I said, sure, and I did it, and I saved uh, uh, about 23 of 25 strains that had been there for years, and so the uh, that's why I figure why I got a letter of recommendation from the pre-health advisor, because I saved his fruit fly research.
0: <laughs> that's so, a great story. Wow. I'm sure it's part of it. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates that to this day. That's funny.
1: Yeah, especially since he and his friend and the other guy said they hated us when we first got there so.
0: <laughs> wow it seems like that was a recurrent theme that's really
1: that was no, crazy yeah but um in any case um so things are different now mm-hmm. i think uh a lot a lot different uh it was one and done you either got in and then, or you you picked another life uh, career mm-hmm. and my backup career was going to be in the foreign service i was good with language and I was going to go get a job working uh, for the State Department as a, a consul general somewhere or whatever.
0: But that would have been your backup plan. That wasn't something that you were like super passionate about, and and, and so your no. primary goal was to always become a doctor.
1: Uh, I wanted to be a doctor. I, I I really did. Yeah. I really did.
0: Did and, you know yeah. what you wanted to um, pursue? Like what specialty you wanted to pursue right away?
1: Uh, wow. Uh, uh, I, I was very interested in, uh, there was no neuroscience major at the time, and but I was very interested in how the brain worked. And all through high school, I, w- I would read about it and understand three quarters of it, but <laughs> I would at least try to read things about, you know, the brain and the basal ganglia and what they did and all this other stuff. It was very tedious reading, actually, but it was interesting. So when I got to medical school, I decided I wanted to probably do med- and neurosurgery and um, I didn't find neuroanatomy that it, w- it was a tough course. We took that for a whole semester. Whoa, but all the different tracts and everything. And I didn't, I didn't realize that I could keep those in my brain mm-hmm. after he finished it. But what changed my mind was, um, I, I, I would go up to neurosurgery. I'd scrub up. I wouldn't scrub, but I put my, you know, scrubs on and go up and watch especially when I was on my neurology rotation as a third year medical student. I knew I wanted to do some type of surgery, but I, I, when I stood and watched for eight to 10 hours, the neurosurgeons doing surgery through a little burr hole in the skull, I I, I realized that I didn't have that kind of concentration that I could really do that. I, I, I couldn't focus that long. It, it's just, and that's how you learn about yourself. Uh, I had to say I then as a surgical resident I had to rotate through neurosurgery mm-hmm. and it was it was tough the, the length of the operations the call schedule I was on call up actually every, every night for two months so I had I was, had bad sleep deprivation yeah because you have to stand
0: on your you have to stand on your feet for like hours at a time hours, hours, yeah I think that was hours. the rotation that my mom actually passed out in and that was how she figured out she couldn't even physically take neurosurgery, so. Yeah.
1: Well, for me, we actually, when I was a surgical resident at the VA, we rotated on neurosurgery and I, we did a 22 hour case. Wow. And and during that 22 hours, I'm not doing anything except holding retractors and suction, and that's it. And I can't even see what's going on because they're working, the attending and the neurosurgical resident are working through this hole about that big and we, we were, And then, of course, when the surgery is over, they look at me and say, okay, Geller, you take care of him. Take him to the ICU. He's all yours. Oh, and so wow. I had to stay up the rest of the night. They got hooked to go home go to sleep at least for wow. a couple of hours. I had to stay up and settle him in because he, he was a diabetic also. But the thing is that uh, I realized it wasn't going to be my my field.
0: Yeah. So. I feel like you once you you know go through rotations and stuff. At least that's what most medical students say. They don't really know exactly what they want. They have an idea of what they want to do, and then once they go through rotations and everything, which happens your fourth year, is that right?
1: Third and fourth. Third and fourth. And maybe now part of the second also because they're changing curriculums all over the country now. Lately. Oh wow! I think they understand that. You know, we. we I took the old flexnerian curriculum where we took i had to take physiology i had to repeat biochemistry i had to repeat microbiology we took anatomy we took neuroanatomy histology embryology uh, i mean those are, and you did that for 2 years the good thing about usc is that once a week they take you out to a hospital so you can talk to patients i thought that was that was that was a very unique thing but it was two more years of basic science it was, excuse me it was it was it it wore you out
0: (laughs) definitely compounds on each other because i feel like i'm already starting to you know wear out just with the the amount of school and online school we've been in but i can't imagine i can't even imagine being in medical school right now at this very moment but i know i'll eventually once i'm there and being people yeah it'll be fine You're taking a gap
1: year, right?
0: Yeah, that's the plan. Taking a gap year and then, um, yeah, and then hopefully attending. So, yeah, it's all crazy because I think something that I find really comical is that whenever I speak to you about, um, you know, all my endeavors and, and what my path to medical school is going to look like and the trajectory, and I relay that to my mom and she's like, well, I just, I didn't do that. And both my mom and dad are, um, they were immigrants. My mom moved from Lebanon to the US but my dad uh, did medical school in Jordan. And then he came um, to the US where they met at University of Iowa during residency. And great,
1: a great medical center.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, another place I'd consider obviously, but they um, they were both like, I just don't understand what the point of a gap year is. We both didn't have to do that. I can't imagine that things are that much different now. Why would people want you to do gap year? And so like, it's it's been tough trying to convince, um, trying to convince them or at least eluc- elucidate as to why um, taking a gap year is helpful and oftentimes necessary.
1: So, so my uh, offer to you is if you want me to talk to them anytime, let me know.
0: <laughs> well, I because- was- Yes. I was actually going to have my mom come on today. Um, but she was working, unfortunately, at the, the same time, because I thought that would have been funny to see. Oh, somebody.
1: I would have loved that. <laughs> I wanted to take a gap year. At that time, it was discouraged. Um, and for for me, if I had, so I was going to be entering medical school at 20 years, I was 20 years old. I actually could have been 19, but I told them I wasn't going to do the some program that they gave you. After three years of college, they took you and they gave you your bachelor's degree after the year of medical school. So I said, nope, I'm young enough. I'm not doing that. And that's why I grew a mustache because I was so young, I wanted to look older. And uh, seriously, that's why I have my picture in the office there my class. And you can see a picture of me when I was 20. But anyway, um, I wanted to take a year off, but I couldn't because if I did, I would have been drafted into the Vietnam War. Oh, wow and uh which you know it was a it was a very difficult time uh, in America but it was worse time in Vietnam of course because they were going through the war itself uh, but it would have been draft time and in you go and that would have been, I got drafted because I got a deferment for four years of medical school and one year of internship
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then I was drafted in um uh, at the end of my first year out of medical school Uh, but right before I was supposed to start my surgery residency they stopped drafting doctors and so they told me I was off the hook but anyway that the the gap year I I I could have used the year off I was so tired yeah Mm -hmm.
0: I feel like um, a lot of the burnout comes from just having no break whatsoever and a lot of people site, you know, wanting to at least have a little bit of an opportunity to travel before real life starts um, as one of the reasons for taking a gap year. I mean, in an ideal world, I'd love to take a gap year and travel, but I know that with, with that gap year comes a lot more responsibility and making sure that, you know, I continue to stay on top of research because um, they don't want to see, I mean, I think that's a lot of kids dilemmas too and taking one is like ensuring that they have something planned for that year Um, and that's a dilemma of mine and that's you know I'm starting to look at look to look towards things um, look towards planning things for my gap year Um, but yeah it's definitely something I think a lot of students don't realize they need to be proactive about um, in terms of trying
1: to determine what to do during that time. Your gap year doesn't hurt you in in any way, Um, it it helps those students who need a little boost in their GPA for the senior grades help, right? So if you started a little slow, but you need a little boost, you can take a couple of science courses in your senior year and help. It doesn't change things tremendously, but it shows a good trajectory and it can actually add to your GPA. You just need to give it a little kick. That's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is it really does give you a break You know, you could really just decide you want to go sell shoes in Nordstrom's and do that, but then you should, you know, continue to volunteer at a hospital somewhere. Uh, You don't have to do research. It's your time. You can't um, can't, um, leave the country because if you're going to get interviewed, you don't want to be off somewhere and and can't make it back for your interview. Uh, but then you can travel because by April of the next year, April, May, you're going to pretty much know where you're going. And so you have May, June, and July to travel anywhere you want. And then medical school starts in August. So uh, you get the chance to do that. Um, it does give you a break. I, you know, I worked every summer when I was a, a senior in high school and then through college. Uh, as I told you guys, uh, the... <laughs> When I got, after my first year of medical school, we did actually have the summer off. You don't get that anymore. No. Uh, But I I got the summer off and I went home to New York and we lived in this little row house in Queens. And uh, I went up to my bedroom and uh, I I didn't, except for eating and taking a shower every day, I, (laughs) I didn't come out for two weeks. I sat there and read all the James Bond novels and all of the uh, other, all these books I wanted to read, and my, my father would come in and say, "Kenny, uh, are you aren't you getting a job this summer?" I said, "No, <laughs> I'm too tired. I'm not doing that anymore." <clears throat> and uh, and I didn't. I took the summer off, and that's the only reason I got through medical school is I took that summer off.
0: So. Well, that must be a very distinct memory, since you know, you were reading James Bond for two weeks and that was the only break you ever you ever got, which is pretty oh,
1: cool I did take, uh, I finished medical school in April and I got to take a couple of months off between res- okay. residency and so I did go to Europe then. So that was
0: my- Oh, day. that's great. See, that's exactly what I would love to do <laughs> again in an ideal world. But um, I guess overall, like, w- would you say that be, be, being a doctor and, going through the entire process, was everything you'd ever wished for and expected?
1: Well, the, the answer is yes. The, the short answer is yes. Uh, I, I always wanted to be a surgeon. My path to surgery was a little skewed, and we can talk about that some other time, because that's another hour discussion about that, how I got to that. Um, the one thing is that when I did my otolaryngology rotation as a medical student, I said, I'm never doing this. <laughs> and it turned out that was my career. That was
0: exactly what you did.
1: <laughs> exactly, right. But I did it with children, which is which is the subspecialty, which I really love. Um, but um, uh, well, figure out where I was going with that. Oh, yes. Was it every, everything? Yes, but it, it was in that sense. I, I feel that. I have, uh, I was very fulfilled throughout my career. Um, the thing is that going into it, I, I had very little experience. I didn't, except from having gone to the doctor, having my tonsils out, uh, you know, going in to see the union doc, my dad's union had a, had a medical plan. So he had to take the train into to Manhattan to go to the doctor, but anyway, um, I remember that after that that summer when I came home after that first year, I went to the visit my family pediatrician, mm-hmm. and I, I his name was um, uh, Mortimer Dubovsky, oh. and uh, I said, Doctor Dubovsky, I said, I, I want to thank you for everything. I didn't know how hard all this was <laughs> when I got to medical school, and uh, and it was hard um and it is hard mm-hmm. and uh, you have to learn more stuff you, you, you learning how to how to be a doctor is, is life-changing and you'll come out of college as a you know it's just like a continuation the next step to in life to your growth and development to maturity as an adult right, mm-hmm. right? You, you kind of feel like you're an adult when you're in high school but you're not uh under certain certain circumstances yes uh but as a as a college student you're you're grown up you're an adult you make your own decisions about most things i mean you do consult your parents sometimes Mm -hmm. um but you're still pretty much the same person i mean there's not any major shifts uh i don't know if you agree with that or not uh you can tell
0: me like there's been a lot of growing up in college I don't think I've changed as a person I just think that I've matured a lot um right just because of the you know the inevitable demand of being away from home that that causes you forces you to be you know self-sufficient and oh
1: yes see and I lived at home in college so I you know my, my mom did the laundry and she cooked for me and I mean I had to buy take care of my own lunch and breakfast in the morning but the thing is that um But when you come out of medical school, you're not the same person that went in. Mm. Honestly, the experiences are too life-changing. It changes your whole outlook about life, about people, about the world, and not necessarily in a cynical way. But there is a certain degree of cynicism that you have to learn to deal with. And you have to constantly beat beat it down. and and there are all kinds of biases that I mean now it, that's you know it's very obvious now that we're dealing with that, but at that time there were other biases. There were those for sure because it was a civil rights movement when I was in medical school.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, so there is there is all kinds of stuff that you grow into that, but you become you change. You 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 will then come back to the. To the, the, the deeper person that you were, the, the the thing that made me want to get up and help up some kid who fell down or that, um, you know, maybe if I, I hit him with a pitch when I was the pitcher, you know, I, I always felt guilty about hitting somebody. With a, I, I got hit plenty of times too. But, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you have to... Uh, I, you have to return to yourself i've always felt that if you come in with a good heart and for the right reasons mm-hmm. you'll be challenged tremendously in medical school and even more so in a residency program because residencies are really hard if you think college is hard medical school is harder. if you think medical school is hard the res- residency oh, is hard. it never stops <laughs> and then when you're out then you're the top of the thing you think ah oh, you know but everybody now it's your your problem you can't uh there's n- you've got to take care of it. You're the doctor. And that's what the, that's what it's all about is the responsibility is so heavy. Yeah. And and that's why it's hard to get into medical school. They, Mm -hmm. they, they really want people who are, who are able to, to, to to hold it together and to deal with all the the things you have to deal with as a physician, the responsibility is, is really heavy. And, in and, you know, in my field, when you're a pediatric surgeon, just think about some parent handing their child off to you to go for you to, to cut on them. I mean, come on. I mean, you have to build such tremendous trust and faith. And you have you have dark days and you have bad days, and you, but you have to learn how to pull out of them. Right. But would I, would I do it again? Absolutely. I, I wish I'd be as smart as I am now doing it again because I would actually study harder I would I would I, I would actually force myself to do more reading and studying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would know what was important and what I, the problem with me is I have to underline I underline the whole page. You can't learn the whole page. You got to know the two things on that page that are important.
0: I'm a very detail oriented person, so sometimes I find it harder to look at the bigger picture and get so caught up in the details. So' I'm, I'm very guilty of that.
1: All right, we got to learn about that. Because in medical school, it's impossible sometimes to be that way. Yeah, there's so. In medicine, you go back and relearn. I mean, after a year of anatomy as a freshman medical student, I didn't really do anatomy again until I was an otolaryngology resident, which is after a year of peds and two years of general surgery. But that extra coming back and doing that head and neck dissection again was so important to me. It was just, it made such a big difference with everything. So,
0: that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's good to hear from coming from, you know, someone who's been in the field for, you know, your whole life to know that all of this hard work that we're continuing to work towards and the amount of education and the finances like that will all um, pay off because I think a lot. I don't think I'm ever hesitant about my desire to become a doctor, but I'm, I think more so than anything, I get a little bit apprehensive and hesitant about the, the, all of the steps that it requires to get there. And I know like those two can't be separated. So you have to, you have to accept and embrace the entire package that comes with it.
1: Okay. So, and I the challenges are there. I mean, you're con- they constantly are adding more tests and more credentialing and everything else. Yeah. That, that's a big difference than it was when I was uh, just coming out. I mean, you got your license after one year out of medical school, mm-hmm. you, you, you had to study to pass uh, the in-service exam every year. But the in-service was a practice test for your board your specialty boards. Mm -hmm. Once you passed your specialty boards, you got, you know, you were licensed in your specialty and certified. And then that was, and then you had to just do continuing education, um, 50 hours every two years. Um, And, but now they want you to recertify every five years or so. It's it's an annoying uh, extra problem. So, you know, you got USMLE and then part one, and then there's part two, and then there's part three, and then there's in-service exam, and then there's a, your, your specialty boards, and then, then there's your recertification exam. So, I mean, so the there's just no end to it. <laughs> nope. That's, yeah. that, that's probably something. I think, I, I'm not sure I, I agree with those recertification exams. I I understand it because the knowledge is so different, but right. you're required to learn. I mean, you're taking 50 hours of. Classes and reading and going to, to meetings and everything uh, every year to learn what's new and what needs to be done and and if you're smart you're reading your journals every weekend you don't stop learning yeah but now they want to formalize it and, and they want to, you got to check a box to to do it so maybe that's the only downside
0: do you think oh, um just in in terms of you know you just mentioned that there's a little bit more um rigor to ensuring that you're, you know, still qualified to be a doctor. Do you think in general that the medical field is heading in a good direction um, in terms of like every aspect, uh, looking at racial inequities and healthcare and um, just the way that we approach patient care? Do you think all all of those facets together are heading in a good direction, or do you think there are some facets that are falling short?
1: So the answer, the the beginning of this question will be pre-COVID. The second part of the answer will be post-COVID. Okay. When I started medical school in 1968, I finished in 72, okay, we thought that we were gonna save the world. There was humongous inequities then. Um, And it's a a long and complicated story. And when I look back, I I I am tremendously disappointed in where it came. So I feel that not only did we not save the world in terms of inequities. I think science is a different story. Um, but in, in, in one aspect, I think we've made it worse. Yeah. And now we're gonna, what are we, what are we gonna do about it? Are we, are we gonna kick the can down to the next generation of doctors?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So So that's the, the pre-COVID thing is that we, we didn't do it. We didn't do the job. And part of the reason was that we were still in a a pretty much fee-for-service model, which I don't always, not completely disagree with, but I do somewhat. I I believe in a a single-payer model across the country. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be government-run, but it needs to be at least run by a a single-payer rather than having all these insurance companies fighting for your Dollars, Um, and that's another discussion we can have because I think that's all messed up. But uh, it got worse. Uh, Managed care was that we were never taught to deny care. In managed care, the whole thing was to deny care to save money. And some of the things we were doing were probably some of the expenditures were abnormal, and we were responsible. We as doctors were part of the cause. But it's a very complicated answer. And I can't tell, I, I can't give it to you more <laughs> in the next few minutes. Yeah. But I think we made it worse. And I think, however, post-COVID now, that this challenge has put the spotlight on a lot of the defects we have in how we practice medicine. Not the practice, but how we manage, mm-hmm. going back to the triple M cube, <laughs> uh, how we manage medicine and patient care in this country needs to be looked at. And I think that we have the wherewithal now. Uh, I'm discouraged. I don't mean to. I'm not discouraged about being a physician. I I think it was the best thing that could have happened to me in my life. I have one child who's a doctor. Uh, I have a a granddaughter who I see her doing the same thing as me. Someone gets hurt, she's running over there. (laughs) She's 12 years old. You know, I mean, she's been doing it for 10 for, for since she can walk. Not really you know, for the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. So that, that's probably gonna happen. We'll see, who knows. But um, the, the, the basic tenet of medicine is, is, is to, you know, the, the goals of medicine are to reduce suffering, to reduce, if you can't cure it, you can make it better. So hopefully, and, and reduce the suffering if you can, if nothing else. And um, I think that we as doctors know that. I am amazed. I used to think that we could convince the American public about how it's a, it's a, it's, it, we should be all taking care of ourselves. We as a society have an obligation to help each other. What, what, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we're all taught that anyway. We're taught that you know, everywhere you know, in our education. Get, once we get out of the out of the you know the academic arena, it's 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 uh, one every man for himself, every woman for herself, mm-hmm. and this COVID thing has put the magnifier on that. The fact that you know people's not caring a- a- about each other in a sense that it was so egregious. Mm-hmm. that we caused thousands of people to die from an infection, we might have, you know, the, the, they stopped believing the doctors. And that may be our phone fault. I don't know. But people don't believe the doctors. They think they have a right not to wear a mask. They politicized masks and mm-hmm. vaccines have been politicized now.
0: I've so, had a conversation with many people. And I think a lot of that, um, I think just going through the pandemic and having seen, you know, people people's belief in science and medicine decrease exponentially um, over the last year. I think a lot of that is owed to the fact that we as, as like, um, I guess scientists are still, you know, really studying COVID and, and don't quite understand it. And there's ever evolving information surrounding it, which seems to contradict each other. And then there's also that, which creates some, some sense of mistrust and then again, with the media, there's no, um, there is no like, um, intermediary between the media and, and the medical field, or at least not a strong enough one where people can um, really trust the information that they're getting from the media, especially when it comes to science, because people already don't trust the media. And when it comes to science, it's, it's even more amplified, I would argue. Um, and I think that's a lot of where that selfishness comes from and that
1: distrust. That's true but I, I could get into a I, I, I could get into a whole thing about gun violence. Yeah. I could get into um, a whole discussion of how we don't take care of our mental health. Mm-hmm. I, I, Patients. I mean, I, I would coming in from my where I live to USC. Almost every week, there is there is some person having a psychological breakdown who's running around the street on Alvarado. You know, <laughs> as I'm driving in. Yeah. I mean, and there's a large uh, homeless encampment in MacArthur Park there. You know, mm-hmm. so we could we could have another discussion about this. I'm just disappointed. Let I me mean, just ended by saying I. I'm disappointed in the American American public because I can't speak for everybody else's country. Yeah. But in this country, one of the most wealthy countries in the world, why we couldn't figure out a healthcare system that works and that everybody's taken care of mm-hmm. um, instead of, and I think people innately believe that. They, they would wanna be taken care of if they were out on the street, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I just don't. It's it's just a it's a selfish approach to life. I think. What's in it for me? Yeah. Type of approach, and that is discouraging for me. That's my only discouragement.
0: Yeah. And I do you feel like doctors themselves have that mindset, or is is that something that is that a quality that doctors should you know stray stray away from?
1: Well. The, the, there's no answer to that only because just because you get a, a, a you go to medical school and get a, an MD or a do um, doesn't mean you're going to be an empathic doctor mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean that there isn't something that's going to turn you to the dark side um, it's very complicated mm-hmm. but like with everything you know you have people that are I mean you have you know, I, I, um, physicians who are, they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they went into it for the wrong reasons, but it's the overwhelming minority of them. Um, you can't hold the whole university of doctors, all of us, all the work that had done under the, the same microscope as the the turkey that was the doctor over at Ingemann, the gynecologist. Mm-hmm that one person, but there's thousands of the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, And unfortunately, that gets, you know, publicized, rightly so, though I'm not saying that shouldn't be publicized. That should be right, but it it makes us look bad. Right. And it's a constant battle to continue to be ethical and caring as a physician. And I think that's very important.
0: So if you had the power and the ability to improve any aspect of the medical field um, or the healthcare system at all, what would they be? And I know that's a loaded question, but- No,
1: it's not, it's a good one. It, it's because it, I, I almost ran for governor of California about 25 to 30 years ago, because on a platform of healthcare education, it was education, health and healthcare. Those are my, gonna be my two biggies. Mm-hmm. And I would have lost because the platform at that time that Pete Wilson won on was um, capital punishment. Let's see, it was um, capital punishment, gun control, and something else. Mm-hmm. Education was nowhere to be considered and healthcare was not a big one. So, but I, I think a I personally think a single payer approach, it's not perfect, there's no perfect approach. But that's managed not by necessarily a government bureaucracy, but is managed by a company that a board that is has people that are business savvy. That and, and doctors must be honest about what their their um, care. What is what is the value of their care in terms of reimbursements? Hospitals. How much does it really cost to take care of these patients? And that we all have to take care of each other. Yeah. Uh, if we if and we can't not do that uh, if we just do that and we that it's a it's a, like a moral obligation because that's what you would want to take people to take care of you if you were injured or sick or dying or whatever right and you wouldn't think twice about it if it were your relative or your child
0: mm-hmm.
1: but when it's somebody else's it's not it's not a it's, it's not in your business right it, but it is and we could go into that but I would change the healthcare system how reimbursements are and costs and I know I could do it uh, I know that there are challenges with that. And there are, no matter what system you put in, someone's gonna corrupt it somehow. Some guy is gonna figure out how to game it. And then people say, see, we told you. But <laughs> I, I still think that the, the, the insurance business model now, uh, I've never been a believer. And if I could change that one thing, I would change that. Okay,
0: that makes sense. Um, and do you feel like you learned a lot about uh, the healthcare industry just being within the medical field or was that something you had previous knowledge of? Because I feel like I, I, I would love to know more about the healthcare industry. I don't know if that is, you know, touched on as much in medical school.
1: Well, the answer to your question is I knew zip <laughs> about it. Uh, we did know as students with like asked, that there were inequities that we thought we were going to fix that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. In the meantime, I was borrowing all the money from Bank of America to pay for my medical education, like a lot of medical students. And then I had to face the reality of getting a job that didn't pay very well as an intern and resident for a total of about eight years. But I had to pay off those loans at the same time. So so that puts your feet on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) medical school, medical school and, and residency programs. I I, I was, it's a total of um, 1968 through, I finished my fellowship in 1980. So it's 12 years. And during that 12 years, I couldn't tell you who the president of the United States was. At any point, if you said, who was the president in 1980, I couldn't tell you. I can tell you Nixon, because he was president when i started medical school but after that i knew jimmy carter was in there somewhere ronald reagan was somewhere in there you know i I just didn't i just couldn't tell you you're just so enveloped in it that things change you only have so much time in your life to do things right and that's why i didn't run they told me number one the consultant i asked about it said cost you two million dollars and you have to be able to go out and sell your program on the grassroots level, I said, "I'm practicing medicine. How am I going to do that? I can't. Yeah. I got I have my rent and my house and my office rent and all the equipment. And oh, oh God, I can't do it. Yeah. So I never did. But I would have lost anyway. But the thing <laughs> is that um, abortion. That was another big one. And on the that was a big thing at the time. So." Um, I don't know. I, I think that the generation coming out will be extremely well educated. Mm-hmm. I think that the um, The fact that we have th- that the, the, the problems with American society have been unmasked Over the last four years. I think it was hidden. The problems were there, that's why none of us really, us who are not in, in, I'm kind of a minority but not a really big minority, but understood. And then it it came out over the last five years. And there was a a subliminal persistence of um, uh, bias, race bias, Mm -hmm. ethnic bias that I I didn't think it was as bad as it was, I was flabbergasted yeah i was flabbergasted by it and it and, a- I, and i think it's beyond my we, we already didn't do do, do enough about it, anything significant about it yeah Um. but now i think it's been unmasked and i think as a society now we could work towards facing up to those inequities facing up to those biases and doing our best it's going to take 20 more years yeah it's not going to change in a year five years six years a work in progress. It's a whole conversation we can have, but
0: it sounds like that's work to be done by the incoming generation.
1: It, it definitely. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Um I guess kind of to close out our conversation, what would you um what's the biggest pieces of advice you'd give to incoming um incoming doctors, um including myself and and everyone else, every other pre-med student um in my generation.
1: That is a, um, well, there's a couple of things. Um, And and you're going to say, you're going to think this is cheesy. (laughs) Okay.
0: Okay, I'm ready. It isn't.
1: isn't. It's serious. Okay. If, If you do two things, number one is always practice the golden rule. The golden rule is somewhere in every religion, every belief system in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a good system, okay, mm-hmm. a belief. But the golden rule, because it makes common sense, right? But the second is, and I, I learned this from Jason and Westberg. It was a book I read in my master's degree uh, studies. Um, but if you if you practice with the golden rule And self-reflection, think about what you're doing. If you make a mistake, why did it happen? And Mm -hmm. try not Mm -hmm. to do it again. It's going to happen. You're going to miss a diagnosis. You're going to miss looking at a lab. You're going to cut the wrong thing in a a surgical procedure. It's going to happen because none of us are perfect. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: None of us. And time and everything was working against you. The more you do, the more chance that one in 10,000 is going to happen. So the golden rule and self-reflection, go back and think about what you're doing that's right and what you're doing is wrong mm-hmm. and know the difference between right and wrong. And just, um, you know, I, I, that's, that's basically it. That's oh, good. so something that uh, one of my attendings in medical school and I don't know where he got this from, um, I gotta see if I can get it straight. Um, you will, as a doctor, you will cure sometimes. You will alleviate often. You will comfort always. And you may have heard that or not, but... I haven't heard that. That that, that was told that as a medical student. And I, I've seen that one place. It's, it's not my original. It wasn't his, but it, it made so much sense to me and then when you're when you're having a hard day and a hard time things are you are tired out and you just want to lie down and you can't mm-hmm. uh, you just remember that when your patient sometimes is not getting better or you feel like you feel you feel like you're failing you just remember that
0: yeah that's really great advice because i feel like there's going to be plenty of situations and circumstances in which i'm going to be discouraged or feel like i'm not you know getting up as a doctor and I think everyone needs to hear that because mistakes are meant to be made. And as long as you can learn from them, I think they're um, more valuable than anything. Um, so that's good to hear and very reassuring.
1: Can I can I disagree with one thing? Yeah. I don't ever think that mistakes are meant to be made. You have to you, you work your life through trying to avoid mistakes. Mm-hmm. But mistakes will happen mm-hmm. inevitably. And it's all based on statistics. It's, it's dispassionate going to happen to yeah. everyone and um and you that's the part of the reflection how do you what do you do to make sure that doesn't happen again yeah but, but thank you i appreciate you asking me to yeah blow off uh steam here a little bit. <laughs> i could go on till midnight tonight with all the questions <laughs> you asked me you sent me those things i said how is she going to get through all oh, of this
0: oh no, i know i i figured i would you know at least yeah, idea goes. of where I wanted to where I wanted to go in terms of what I wanted to discuss, um, but everything you told me today and what we discussed was great, and I think um, it will be helpful for myself and for other pre med students who just want to know a little bit more about what it really is like to be a physician because we're you know we're on the path to become one, but we don't really know what it's like when you get there until you're there. So it's That's always right. nice it's always nice to hear. Um, from, you know, a person who has been in, in the medical field for so long. So I do appreciate that. Thank you for coming on tonight, Dr. Yeller.
1: Okay, Maya, and good luck on finals. Thank to you. All you guys out there, good luck on your finals. <laughs> better you than me.
0: <laughs> I'll let you know how o- O-chem goes.
1: <laughs> all right, you tell me how it went, because I got a C in O-chem B. So, <laughs> oh boy, I, yeah, I, I think I, it's, I, better. it's okay, going well, better. Okay, well, good luck. Yeah. Good luck.
0: All right. Well, thanks for for tuning in, everyone. All right. Talk to you soon, Dr. Geller.
1: Okay, you guys. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.